This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Welcome back to the show, everyone. It's no secret Ron and I look for every opportunity to level up. One of our favorite ways to level up is audible.com. You can listen to audiobooks, comedy, wellness programs, and tons of other content. To grab your free Audible trial and your free audiobook, visit the link down in the description or in the show notes. I cannot believe it. We are at episode 100 of the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. And in this episode, we're going to dip in the Hacker Valley vault. We're going to pull out some of the best content that we have yet to release. If you want to hear the entirety of these episodes, be sure to check out our Patreon page in the show notes. And with that, let's get right to this awesome episode 100 of the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio for episode 100. We've been through it all with all of our amazing listeners and guests. So proud to be at this moment. It's incredible. I never thought that I'd have a podcast and we'd have 100 episodes completely finished and put out. It's been an amazing journey. And one thing I would love to do in this episode is talk a little bit about what we've learned over the past 100 episodes. For me, the the main thing that I learned is that there are so many diverse voices in the world, so many interests and passions, and it just makes me want to learn more and talk to more people. But what about you? Our guests have really taught me a lot about cybersecurity and upgrading themselves to the next level. And through that, we created this 20 principles that we now live by. We've distilled so much information, knowledge, and wisdom from our guests and the feedback from the listeners. And now we have protocols that we can learn from and develop from even further. I think that's a huge point because I do feel as a person, I've grown with every single interview every single podcast we've done, taking a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person. And that's really where we got that 20 principles from. Do we want to share like some of the principles with with folks today? Yeah, let's do it. The first principle that we have on our list is create your habits and allow your habits to create you. I think one of the things that we've really learned from all of our guests is the persistence, showing up and always doing your best and allowing the best of you to create the future you. I feel like part of the the podcast journey has been setting that weekly cadence. And sometimes it was a twice a week cadence. And we just constantly improved and we built and we improved and we built and we improved. And that's how we got to where we are today. For folks out there that are looking to do anything, that are looking to start a podcast or they want to take up watercolor painting or anything an instrument, a martial art is really just setting that habit of doing that thing over and over again until you become the optimized version of yourself in that arena. Two more of my favorite principles that we've created over time is grow your field by promoting diversity. And Mm. really our goal together has been to amplify the voices in technology and cybersecurity. 
singing about the unsung heroes and really learning more about the technology that drives the industry forward. And another thing is putting in the time through deliberate practice. So not just creating your habits and allowing them to create you, but practicing intently, focusing on the goal and pushing that muscle and and, and strengthening that muscle more and more each day. I feel like that also relates smashingly to the habit principle that we have. Deliberate practice is one of the most important things you can do if you want to be good at anything. But I really want to touch on that diversity component that you talked about. When I think of diversity, I think of it as parts of a brain. Like you have different populations in different pockets of your brain. But it's really when you want to utilize that entire brain, each facet of your mind is when you you come to these great innovations, this disruption if you're building a company. So really including diverse and different voices and different backgrounds and ways of thinking is how you come up with some of the most beautiful things in humanity, whether it's art, whether it's science or technology. That's really where I think that diversity lends itself to. Absolutely. And one of the great things about our previous episodes and seasons is the ability to have sponsorships. So we've been able to scale the podcast and grow ourselves even further. And as a result of just interacting with our sponsors, we created the Easy Framework course. And it's going to be released by the time you're listening to this episode, which is awesome if you just Google for Introduction to Easy Framework. You can find it on Google on Attack IQ. Yeah, that it's really been a great journey doing all of these talks, these courses, doing the speaking engagements that we've done. It's really surreal if you think about it. Never did I think when I started doing a little bit of speaking in the beginning that it would grow to what we've built together. And one thing I, I do want to mention is that we actually did our very first contest. We did it on LinkedIn, yes. and we said that there were going to be two winners, and the two winners are going to win a poster. They're going to win a mastermind conversation with Ron and I. They're going to win a T-shirt, all these awesome things, and a shout-out on this episode. So without further ado, who are the winners of the contest? Drum roll, please. <laughs> <laughs> the winners of the contest are AJ Yan and Mary Galloway. Big shout outs to you all for winning this. We're going to post a nice video on LinkedIn. But really, thank you for being listeners and supporters of the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all the support for as long as we've been around and for even participating in this. It means so much to us. Uh, Thank you so much. And to make this 100th episode even more special, we've brought in more industry experts And we're going to be hearing from many guests in a single episode. Oh, I can't wait for this one. All the the knowledge and combined experiences of all these guests. Can't wait to share all of these with you. And with that, let's jump right into our very first guest. The first guest is Travis McPete. He is my brother from another mother. We work together at Netflix. Brilliant application security guru. But really, in this episode, he talks all about being a generalist and how he used being a generalist to be the best that he can be in cybersecurity. So let's jump right to it. Yeah, Travis, appreciate you being on the show. I really miss our our long walks on the trail, just discussing tech, discussing life, things like that. As soon as we met, I felt like we had a lot in common. We saw eye to eye on threat intelligence. We saw eye to eye on DevOps. 
just so many things across the board. For folks that don't know who you are just yet, could you give us a little bit of your background, how you got to where you are today and what you're doing? Sure. So I'm a security generalist. And what I like to tell people there is I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not an expert in crypto. I'm not the world's biggest expert on cool AppSec techniques, but I like to know a little bit about a lot of things. And I think that there's value in being a generalist. A lot of companies, especially small ones, they're not going to hire a 50, 100 person security team. What they really need is somebody that understands that whole landscape and can say, cool, based on where you are, you need to get the basics of G Suite lockdown. You need to get AWS configuration dialed in, that kind of stuff. So going from not zero to 100 in any particular area, but zero to 20 in lots of areas, I think is, is what most a lot of companies need unless you're going to have a big security program. So that's what I try to do. In particular, in my career, I focus a lot on automation. I think that most of us realize that you know the industry is terminally short on the folks that we need to just throw bodies at a problem. And the way that we can address that is one, uh, expanding into new pools and getting more people into the industry. And two, automating away the problems where it's just tedious to do manually. So I've tried to focus there. Throughout my career, I've my most uh, prideful moments have been coming up with some tool that solves a problem that can scale up nicely. So a couple of examples of that are Bandit, which handles Python static analysis. And we use that to remove a lot of defects in OpenStack and RepoKit, which handles least privilege at scale. Least privilege is one of these things you learn about in school. And that's awesome. Why don't we all just least privilege? But it turns out when you're trying to do that for thousands of apps, it's really hard. And RepoKit handles that elegantly in AWS. Automation has also helped me tremendously, and I think it can help an organization, like you were saying, have more general experts to solve a more wide variety of problems. What does that look like for your team? How do you enable security for anyone that's creating applications or or code? Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, This is something I'm excited about because at Netflix, at some organizations, you would have a central security team and they are responsible for security. But in Netflix and some other companies like that, Netflix is my day job. And I really like how they focus on enabling developers to do their jobs. So we don't have, for example, an ops team that manages the services, that the developers. We don't have a separate testing team for the most part. What we do is we have one development team and they own end-to-end everything about their service. So they design it and architect it and then implement it and test it and operate it. And they get called for it in the middle of the night when it goes down. And part of that is security. Now, when you have developers that are trying to do all these things, you have to really make tools that enable them to do their job better. Developers don't want to spend three months to learn about all of the security things that they need to know. What they want is, like, to steal a term from Chris, they want the easy button. They want, (laughs) you know, you just push the button and, okay, tell me the things that I need to know for this app and give me step-by-step simple instructions for it. So that's really what we've been focusing on at Netflix is building that baseline instructions and guidance for developers so that they know exactly the things that we recommend for their app. Amazing. And the next guest is Rishi Bargarva. He is a co-founder of Demisto, which is a company where I used to work. It was absolutely amazing working side by side Rishi and creating a great product that was ultimately acquired by Palo Alto Networks. But in this episode, we talk about Rishi's founder's journey. And we speak more about how the idea of Demisto came about and how he executed such a great strategy. Absolutely. So I, I, I would say call myself an engineer by training, 
and uh, then an entrepreneur. My background is I've done product management for most of my career, but uh, about five years ago in 2015, started Demisto with three of my other co-founders and I was picked to do marketing and I said, why not? So I did the go-to-market side with, of course, a very, very sharp interest on the product side as well as Demisto. Prior to that, um, I've spent a lot of years at McAfee where I got to via another startup acquisition. So that's me, a lot of product experience. And most recently, I enjoy myself figuring out what would work for the customer, what would solve customer problems. You know, speaking of customer and solving problems, one of the reasons why, you know, I started working at Demisto was because I was working at Intel and I was having a huge issue managing kind of automations. I would love to hear kind of the founder's journey behind, you know, you and the other co-founders of Demisto and how that came to be exactly. Yes, definitely would share that. But I, I think what's more interesting here before we share that is, how did we make a decision on to go or not to go with Ron? Oh, right. Oh, got to hear it. Drop the story, Rishi. <laughs> uh, I think these listeners would love to hear that. So the, the bizarre part, I still remember our office, the corner office where Ron came in and we had the interview. It was me and Slavic. I think it was Slavic first and then me. And Slavic came out after the first hour and... I'm a big believer it's like everybody needs to align if we're going to hire somebody or not at that stage of the company. It's not majority, it's unanimity that drives strong talent at the early stage of the company. So Slavic comes out and in my, like we, we have this usual thing is like, Slavic, should I go in? And Slavic says, OMG, first <laughs> ask him, why did he pick Demisto? Because he, Ron had applied to Demisto from the website. Who does that for a small startup? Like, how did you find that? <laughs> Yeah, there was like 20 people, right? There was like, I think I was like number 25 to 30 yes. or something like that. But for anyone that doesn't know, I am a subscriber of Crunchbase. And Crunchbase allows you to search companies based off of their funding amount, years founded. And you could also do some more advanced searching based off of like the type of founders that are behind the company. So surprisingly, Demisto and a few other companies popped up in my in my search term and my search results, and I, I saw that Demisa was doing security automation, which was exactly my job at Intel. And they had enough money, you know, funded to afford the bills. I love that about it. And uh, yeah, Rishi and Slavic were both very surprised that that was the strategy of finding the company and applying. One of the things that I really loved about working at Demisto was the fact that really Everyone there could code. You can code. The other co-founders can code. I never met. Even the salespeople can code. What do you think was most pivotal to the success and kind of launch of Demisto? What really propelled the, the idea and the platform forward? I think that's an interesting observation that uh, a lot of people could code. But I think what really matters and this is what we definitely looked at throughout the startup journey, is we do not want talkers, we want doers. And it's not about coding. I mean, if you look at it, I believe even the most successful uh, leaders, however senior they become, they are able to fold their sleeves and actually do stuff when it needs. 
and it could be whatever. It could be go do research. It could be build slide decks in depth. It could be analyze customers. But being able to go to basics and do whatever it takes. And that's super important. And that was one of the things in DNA. Like if you look at our different departments, right? Like Ron, Ron is part of the customer success security engineering team. Look at the leader there. It's like, when would you have a senior leadership reporting to the CEO would go hands down, deal with the day-to-day things or from the product management to be able to go involve in each sale, involve at granular level with a POC. And I think that's to me what it takes to build a company. I mean, startups are hard work, right? And if you start to have people who are more says, hey, I have this title and I'm going to just tell people what to do. It's This is not my role. That's the end of it. And then the other thing in Demister, by the way, to, to answer your question on, uh, we never, like, input for a marketing program could come from engineering and we would take it. And there was amazing amount of inputs from marketing. The input to marketing came from engineering, from customer success. You were part of so many things. Uh, product ideas could emerge from anywhere. Marketing would come back with product ideas. I know our marketing team and some of the junior folks in the marketing team have come up as like, why don't we do this in our product as a feature? We find that feature and we did it. So that's the point, which is like, hey, you really make it uh, egalitarian approach to innovation there. Wow, that's incredible. Rishi is brilliant. Up next, we have Levi Gundert. Levi has this incredible idea of a cybersecurity draft. I think it's something that we need to have in the future, and it might be inbound soon. But without further ado, let's jump right to Levi's. One thing that I, that you brought up that I thought was actually brilliant, and I would love to get Ron's take on it, is the idea of a cybersecurity draft, right? Getting people from yeah. either high school or college yeah. that really dive deep on a particular facet of cybersecurity. Ron, I know you're a big sports fan, but what would you think about if there was a draft when you were coming out of high school or college that companies could actually say, we would like to draft Ronald Eddings. And then it's like this big thing is televised. People are like, wow, he he got selected for this team or this group. Uh, What what would you think about something like that? Since I didn't play a lot of sports in high school, <laughs> that would be the, a dream come true, obviously. <laughs> but I think that something like that would be pretty interesting. I think it would make a huge incentive for a lot of bringing in more diversity to the field. I, I, I think mm-hmm. we see that out of things like esports. There's a huge following. It's exciting. There's a kind of a competitive and game-like component to it. So... Uh, you you really get to get all the excitement from everybody. I think it would be great if we had something like that. Yeah, I I see. I just see a lot of potential. Whether it's kids, I say kids because they're coming out of high school or maybe even college. I don't know. But to me, I'm old. So they're kids. They have, to Chris's point, they have specific skill sets in uh, red teaming, or they have a specific skill set in uh, network defense, or whatever it may be. And there's there's a combine. Just the NFL has a combine. There's a combine for, you know, skill demonstrations. And I don't know. I think in the next 10, 20 years, those types of skills are going to become more and more in demand. And obviously, the younger that you can identify talent, the better for your organization. It seems like you've been in cybersecurity, really focusing on intelligence for quite some time. 
What stories can you share to anyone trying to break in? What are some exciting things that you've worked on and things that you're proud of? Wow. <laughs> That's a big question. So I really started down the rabbit hole with threat intelligence when I was at Secret Service. And I came back from the academy back east and I, I sat down at my desk in the LA field office and I, they handed me a couple of case files and, and they were stale old cases that there was zero probability of solving. And I thought this model is not going to work where we wait for the phone to ring and someone says, Hey, we've had a breach or we've been hacked. Or I had one time I had a, a guy call me and said his mother had sent half a million dollars overseas to somebody who was in prison. And it's, it's like those types of events or incidents are very difficult to solve. As, a, as an investigator. And that's really when the light bulb went on for me, where I said, wait a minute, we have to get very proactive in terms of what we're doing here. We have to start infiltrating online criminal communities. We have to set up the infrastructure, the unattributable infrastructure. So I set up a couple operations uh, that were specifically designed to proactively identify suspects that were engaged in cybercrime and flip the model on its head. And I'm really proud of the work that you know, we did there, the team of people I worked with and the the rest, the arrest that we made. And I actually, from that time, there's a funny, so I don't know if I should go public with this or not, but at the time- The answer should be always yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time, this is 2006, I think, I was still working some cases that would come in randomly. And one of them was MySpace and Sammy Camcar had, you know, created this cross-site scripting worm. And it was, I think, the first self-propagating cross-site scripting worm that went through MySpace system and basically added a comment to everyone's profile that said, Sammy is my hero. And at the time, Sammy was 19 and a lot of it was was driven by curiosity. MySpace at the time said, look, this is costing us millions of dollars and that's a pretty major event. Fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, that was my case. And so I was the one that actually served, you know, a search warrant on Sammy at 19 down in Marina del Rey. And oh. uh, it, it was pretty crazy because there was nothing crazy about the case. It was pretty straightforward. The The issue is what happened afterward. And Sammy is a brilliant, he's just a brilliant guy. And I consider him a friend of mine now. He actually spoke at the Recorded Future user conference that we had in, in the fall. He was the keynote speaker. And it was crazy because I'm sitting in the back row listening to Sammy keynoting the Recorded Future Conference. And he's talking about his personal story and how he came down in the morning to the garage to get in his car and go to work and how we were standing there and he knew it was not good and the, the whole thing and how it played out. And he's like, I even took my iPod and I'm yelling from the back of the room that we had to take it because it was digital evidence. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so uh, it's not it's awkward crazy. at all. Yeah, not <laughs> awkward at all. So it was one of those crazy stories because Sammy didn't touch a computer for, I think, three years as part of the sentence on other things. And he talks about sort of his own personal story and the 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 advantages, sort of the benefits that came out of it that he may not have seen before. But I think I'm really blessed just that I have a different perspective today. And Sammy's a friend of mine and, and I completely respect him and, and his talents. But back then, it's just, it was a very different sort of situation. That's one of the, the crazier stories. And 
Yeah, I think there's been some other things. I I did some work at Team Cymru. They were what I would consider the OGs of Threat Intel. They were doing Threat Intel before anyone back in 2004, 2005. And a lot of people don't know them or they don't connect the name. So they hear Team Cymru. They don't know that it spells C-Y-M-R-U. But if they see it on paper, they go, oh, yeah, I know those guys. Yep. I was there for about six years and, and did a lot of interesting work with interesting data. So... Yeah, there's been, I'm, I guess the moral of the story is I'm extremely blessed to have the career that I've had and, and just working with the people that I've been blessed to work with. So it's been a really fun ride. Tell us a little bit about your book. What was the the inspiration to, to write this particular book about risk? And what are some of the basic tenets that you about lay in the book? Sure. Yeah, I can talk about risk all day. So when I was at the previous financial services company, you know, one of the things that we did was a, a daily threat report. And when I first started, it was something that the business asked for, and I didn't really question it. But the, the longer we did it, the more I started questioning the value of it. Talk about athletics. We brought in my good friend, Josh Halpert, and he is a master of movement. He was my coach for a long time, doing primal and functional movement. And in this episode, we talk a little bit about the human body and what is the minimum viable dose of exercise let's jump right to it we were working together i i saw so many gains in so many different avenues uh, within my own health my, within my own body i remember us attacking that hill every what was it sunday we were doing that stuff yeah. oh goodness crawling backwards up the hill that is brutal for those of you that haven't crawled up the hill backwards try it out it's tough but definitely talk to a doctor first. But the one thing I, I definitely want to, to talk to you about, and with everything that's going on with COVID, a lot of folks are at home. They don't have access to their gym equipment or anything like that. Maybe they have some kettlebells if they're lucky, maybe a pull-up bar and a doorframe. The main thing I wanted to ask you about is this minimum viable dose of exercise for folks to get that mental boost and also keep their, their bodies functioning at, at a certain level. What are your thoughts and what are some things that people can do to maintain that? Mm. Okay, so like the minimum effective dose. So I'm going to have to circle around to come back to that just so I think it makes more sense what my answer would potentially be. But I always definitely try to look at things from uh, an evolutionary perspective from the science, because I think we are we're definitely the most studied thing is ourselves, right? We've there's so much uh, a conglomeration of information that's trying to figure out where we came from and, and, and how the human body works. So just generally to give details, we came from like hunter gatherers, right? So we that's hundreds of thousands, millions of years of, of evolution and has propelled us to the point where we are today. And knowing where we came from helps us uh, answer some questions about where we are today or how to manage ourselves. You know, there's a lot of people that will say, all you need is 15 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day. And I, it's hard for me to say that's really the case because our bodies are, are used to moving multiple our ancestors we haven't really evolved physically from 10,000 years ago if you want to go before the agricultural revolution even more than 10,000 years ago we came from people that had to live hard lives right so our, i think our body has been forged by natural selection to be moving a lot throughout the day we know that if you nature's very simple use it or lose it so if your body is always trying to save energy it will lose ranges of motion if you don't visit those ranges of motion that's a big part of the, of the work i do with people so the idea of just compressing all of your movement nutrition into a half an hour or less dose in a 24-hour day 
I don't think it's probably the best model to look for it. So I would say if you want minimum effective dose, I think you have to change your environment so that you have more opportunities to move throughout the day. In addition to your set intentional training time. So if you're like, hey, you know what? I got a half an hour kettlebell workout plan. Great. Throughout the day, you should make sure that you're moving your joints. Maybe you're walking more and instead of having to drive, you're putting objects. If you work at home, you're putting objects out on your feet so that you can you know, uh, mobilize your feet so they're not always just in shoes or on the same type of ground. Uh, there's a lot of things going on into what makes a healthy human. And I think because of the society that we have and everything, we, we get pigeonholed into thinking, what's the minimal I can do? And as far as the paradigm, I don't think that's going to set us up for the most success because if you think about where we came from, we should be in a forest looking for food all day. We should be squatting. We should be moving in multiple directions. We should have our circadian rhythm aligned with what's going on, but that's not the case. So I, I really think like understanding a little bit of that background and then acting accordingly. So again, stacking your day with more movement opportunities. I think it does answer it. And it, I, it actually makes more questions for me. It makes me think a little more creatively right now because I am someone who checks off a checkbox. I work out a few minutes in the morning and work out a few minutes around 5 p.m. And I know that's probably not the minimum dose that I should get. But I work in front of a computer all day. I'm looking at code and cybersecurity information. What are some things I could do while at my desk? I have a standing desk. What are some things I could do there to maybe move a little bit more? What comes to mind? One of the things that comes to mind is learning. So something that we teach to people is called CARS. C-A-R-S. It's, it's an acronym for Controlled Articular Rotation. And Basically, it's being able to visit the full range of motion you have in each joint, like with intention. So if you were to extend your arm back straight behind you in what we call shoulder extension, chances are most people don't use that range of motion. It's just there's not a lot of opportunities in a normal day to reach behind you. And so over time, you'll lose that range of motion. So the things that you could do without having like instruction on how to do this, if you're just looking for kind of an intuitive approach, I would say uh, fidget like wiggle more, move your spine in different positions while you're at your desk. Try to make circles with your ankles. Put yourself in different positions so that you're not stuck in a, what I call like a monocrop position. So you have like monocrop culture, which is like corn gets planted on the same field every year and it depletes the soil. It's the same thing with moving. If you're only, if you're stuck into one way of moving or just a couple of different patterns, your body is going to get really efficient at those ways. And in the process of that, you're going to lose ranges of motion other other places as well that you might need at some point. So stacking your day with, you could have a tennis ball by your foot. Maybe you're stepping on the ball a little bit to get a little stretch out of your ankle. You're making circles with your arms every half an hour. You're uh, letting your wrist make circles, moving circles with your neck. Just little micro movements that you can do that's not going to pull you from your work, but you're still stacking your movement with day. You're trying to inject more opportunity for movement. I think that will go a long way, especially with the people I work with who are also very desk bound, they just, they know that they feel a difference in the end of the day if they have been moving around versus that stuck position. Like sitting all day isn't good for you, but standing all day in the same position isn't good for you either. The, the, the enemy is rigidity. Not, uh, you want more variability. I literally just started moving all my joints as uh, Josh was talking. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> Josh, when all this pandem the pandemic stuff started happening, I f immediately thought of you. And it's not for the reason that most people might think. But I actually started thinking about how 
many people are now going shoeless, sockless. And I wonder what that's actually going to do for the foot health of people like around the world, because everyone, they live in their shoes, especially when they're at work, their feet are all cramped up and they're very rigid, like you were just talking about. What do you think all of this like shoelessness is actually going to do for the foot health of people around the world? That's a, I, you know what? I haven't actually thought about that. That's a good point. If people are going to be at home and they're, they're going to be they're not wearing shoes in the house, and normally they would wear shoes for 10, 12 hours a day, that's a big difference in, in what the foot's going to get exposed to. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing. I think if you look at what happens to the foot, like the foot is one of the coolest inventions of nature. Like, like, like the human foot, like what it's meant to do is be really efficient and help you propel force onto the next step, which helps makes us really efficient walkers and runners. It's amazing. There's so many bones in the foot and there's so many different structures that are there to transfer force, right? In the foot, like we talked about before, is it, it, it's, it's naturally selected to get variety. But if you're wearing the same shoes, like think about where we walk to work, if you will actually, or if you go to the grocery store, you just go out, all the ground is symmetrical. It's flat. Very rarely do you even walk uphill, so you don't even get a natural stretch on your calves. You don't wobble your ankle because you're stepping on rocks. You're just very like the same thing over and over. So it gets stiff, right? Your, your body is very efficient. It's gonna, it wants to save calories. So if you're not using stuff in the like range of motion in the foot, uh, a lot of the mechanical receptors, which tell your, your brain and your nervous system where the joint is, they suck up energy. So if you're not gonna use them and justify their energy expenditure, over time, you're gonna lose them. And so I think if people are using their feet more, they're giving their, their toes opportunities to spread out, they're, they're, they're walking more, they're stimulating the foot by itself without the shoe, I, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if people feel a little stronger, a little bit more connected in their feet. I hope you got a lot of nuggets from Josh. I know I did. I'm going to be moving my body a lot more and learning from the best. And speaking of learning, our next guest is Simran Sakrani. She is a rising cybersecurity superstar. She's doing a lot in the field when it comes to mentorship and fellowship in cybersecurity. So let's jump right into it. I actually fell into cybersecurity and the security space quite in, well, a serendipitous way, really. And I was very involved at my university. I was a business major. I ended up in an intelligence fellowship. So I had an idea that was going to end up having me move to Washington, D.C., which it did. And I fell into cybersecurity completely accidentally because I had actually bumped into a mentor on campus. And he was a director of the fellowship that I was a part of. And he was like, I would love for you to go to this lunch for me. I can't make it, but I think it would be something that would interest you. What do you say? And I was about to go to a yoga class with a girlfriend. So I looked at her and I was like, you heard him. And I, I just decided to take the chance and go. I didn't know. I didn't even know who the person speaking was. He didn't send me the details till I was about to walk in. But she was actually the Estonian ambassador to the U.S. And she was incredible. And the topic was actually on cyber warfare. So after that, I switched my research for the fellowship from Chinese. I switched from transnational crime, human trafficking in India and the tracking of black money to Chinese offensive cyber capabilities and its effect on U.S. critical infrastructure. So specifically more about SCADA systems which is how I ended up 
in the cybersecurity space, starting off with threat intelligence, which is how I met Chris. I am actually sitting on the board of Streetwise Partners, which is a nonprofit that helps those that are underemployed or are unemployed help to reshuffle their cards, right? Because not everyone is born with a great set of cards. And everyone in that program is is really trying to make a better life for themselves and their family. And a lot of the mentees, because it is a mentorship program, a lot of the mentees are are really trying to break into IT and cybersecurity. So because mentorship has played such a large role in my own life and my success and it's helped me get me to where I am today. I think giving back is really important. So I spend a lot of my time working with the mentees and trying to connect them with folks that might be able to give them the insight and advice and encouragement, the tools that they need to be successful because there's a huge cybersecurity workforce gap. I'm sure you've read about it. And I think it's important to fill it. Wow, that was such a a good conversation with Simran. Up next, we have Gary Berman. In this episode, we talked about how he is the Forrest Gump of cybersecurity. He stumbles his way through all these interesting introductions, and he built such a wonderful thing in his comics and all of his content that he produces. Let's jump right to it. The reason I think of myself as the Forrest Gump of cybersecurity, for those of you who may not know the reference, this was about this this guy, great, you know, great, but very simple-minded, you know, person who just kind of goes through life doing his thing and ends up in these most extraordinary situations. And that's certainly the truth in my case, because up until a few years ago, I knew nothing about cybersecurity, but everything about what it meant to be a victim of a series of insider threats. My right-hand person and some tech contractors essentially cloned my company. Uh, redirected phone calls when they were coming to my office, uh, spoofed our website, uh, called our biggest clients saying that we were under investigation by the FBI and to cease communications. 36 people were attached to my OnStar account listening uh, to conversations in the car and goes on and on and on. So after dealing with the Secret Service and the FBI and things like that, um, kind of unable to receive justice due to the difficulty of attribution and obfuscation, I made a big pivot to try to help. And I wanted to see if there's a way to be an advocate. But the problem was I knew nothing about cybersecurity at all. So I bought a book called Cybersecurity for Dummies. And 10 pages in, I was lost. And that's when I realized there had to be a better way to distill complicated technology and cybersecurity information into something that would be even more engaging and entertaining and fun, yet still impart you know, the important information, how to keep people safe at at work and home at school. I would love to hear more about how was the TV network and comic platform, where does it fit into this origin story and and how did you exactly get started there? Yeah, thanks for that question. Well, you know, I needed to learn about cybersecurity. So like, you know, everyone in the ecosystem, I started going to conferences and Chris saw this necklace I wear with them. I've never counted them, but easily 50 conferences, you know, and, and everybody in this industry does that or did up until, you know, COVID. And I just listened and learned to the smartest people in the world, you know, about all this stuff. 
and developed, you know, beginning relationships, the, the community with the capital C, are the helpers of the world, incredibly generous with their time and their expertise. And so I did that for three years, not making a penny. I, you know, I donated everything. I, I created these comics with the team because we knew that having just sort of a death by PowerPoint, you know, it's just not going to do it when it comes to people at work or or families or children. And we knew that everyone was going to Marvel movies and all that. So we said, hey, why not superhero comics? So I had to learn about that. And when one of my Forrest Gump stories is I went to my first Comic-Con and I was dressed in a, a, a sport coat and a white shirt and khaki pants. And as soon as I got out of the car in the parking lot, this woman in giant butterfly wings and painted green with antenna came up and said, sir, I think you're overdressed. Um, well, that was my introduction into the comic universe, which was another mind blowing thing in case you have never had a chance to do that. So anyways, I just, uh, tried to become like a mini, a mini Marvel comics. And, and so as an expression of that, it, it kind of took off, you know, it turns out people liked it. They, they were reading with the family after they came home from work and, and we were so fortunate to to get lots of support, you know, behind that initiative. And then starting in January of, of this year, I went to the RSA conference in San Francisco and I was doing interviews there uh, as a cybersecurity reporter for uh, a cybersecurity magazine. And um, then right after that COVID hit and I realized I had all this really incredible you know, conversations recorded just on my iPhone, you know, but with all the noise and all that. And then I realized, you know, there's something here and people need, you know, you, I wanted to shine the light on, on these unsung heroes who toil in anonymity to keep us safe, you know, at work and home, at school. And the only time you hear about hacking is when the bad people win, you know, and I just wanted to fix that. And it turns out there are lots of great unsung heroes like, like you, Chris. Gary's doing so much outreach. We've actually been on his podcast. If you haven't checked out his podcast, Unsung Heroes would highly recommend it. Our next guest is Nick BGA. He is a CXO. That means he carries the weight of a lot of organizations and has so many responsibilities. But one of the great things about Nick is his philosophy on not getting burnt out and embracing the process. This is a must listen. So let's jump right into it. I'm glad that you mentioned that and being burnt out and getting burnt out by trying to carry the weight of the world. As someone who's now a CXO, probably carrying, literally carrying the weight of security and business processes and advising organizations, how do you handle not getting burnt out? What are some of your strategies and philosophies? <laughs> this is a different kind of burnt out because I want to try to help everyone understand this mindset. It's it's challenging, right? And I think this is hum the nature that for most of us have in the industry where we just want to try to help everyone. For me, it's about taking a step back on a fairly regular basis and actually looking at my calendar and be like, where am I spending my energy? And am I focusing on the right things? It's really easy to get lost in the moment. There's always going to be more work to do. There's always more work to do. And it's really a question of like how much you pull back on the reins and go work on those relationships outside of when you need people, train and get better at your craft and, and who you want to be. 
making sure that you like dedicate time to those things because it's really easy to get lost in doing. And that's where we as people just don't, we end up getting burnt out. So it's extremely challenging. It takes a bit of that like Zen master moment to take a step back, but you learn it over time, right? I've been in my forties and you just, at a certain point, you start learning this stuff. When you're in your twenties and and thirties, you're usually just trying to do as much as you possibly can all the time. You just end up realizing that you're like Sisyphus and and you'll never uh, get out of pushing that rock up the hill. So you talk about learning. How have you learned over the years? What are the best ways that you've learned the lessons that you have from a, a people aspect, from a leadership aspect? How do you like to learn? Is it books? Do you, did you take courses? Is it just trial by fire? How, how did you do it? A little bit of everything. People look at my resume like, oh, you hopped around a lot. And my answer is no. I've changed roles. But every time was with a very specific goal in mind. I worked at Sony after PlayStation, before pictures very important during the quiet periods. But I went there to learn what it was like to work at a huge company and learn budgeting, right? Like it wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to go and and do X. It was, I have a thing I want to learn. When I worked at Pounds here, I was on the business development side. And the goal was to see how as many other organizations as I can, see how they're approaching security. And and I got that out of it. And DigitalOcean was, I want to learn about cloud. I want to build a program from scratch. And, and leverage some of the skill sets that I acquired in Sony. Another great learning experience was just like private, international privacy. So I got to leverage all of that. And then again, like when I went to Gemini, it was about how do I, I want to learn, I want to get uncomfortable and I want to learn about, I want to go back to my technology roots. I want to own infrastructure and I want to consume the decisions of security and how they're approaching things and see what it's like. So it was, for me, it's about staying off balance. And if I'm not learning I'm not exposed to new things and I'm not around mentors and people that I can absorb information from. That to me is the sign that it's time to move on. It's about constantly being a block of clay and constantly morphing and continuing to add those layers of experience together. And that's what gets you to a point of taking a step back and replaying those things and like, how would this work in this particular situation? It's so awesome that he was speaking about burnout because that transitions perfectly to Christina Murillo's episode. She starts talking about burnout and jumps into this whole facet of cybersecurity and what it means to the individual. Let's jump right to it. It's funny that you talk about burnout because I feel like I've hit those points uh, many times. And, uh, you know, I, I start to question like my why. And my why goes back to, I'm a lifelong learner. And also I love solving problems. I love being able to look at something and figure out or look at a problem or a potential problem and ways that I can apply technology to solve the problem. Because again, we have to go back to technology as a vehicle. I think that a lot of times we think that, oh, we're so special because we're security experts or technology experts. But at the end of the day, we're a cost center. I like to argue that point. I used to say to people like, we're not a cost center. Yes. Okay. Fine. On paper, we're a cost center. But if it weren't for us, things wouldn't, you guys wouldn't be productive. But from a business perspective, when you look at it, we are a call center. So we are there to empower the business. And I look at things like, how do, how can I be of value? And I love that challenge. Like I love, I love challenges. I love figuring out complex problems and brainstorming solutions. 
And I think that I'm really good at it. And I, to be honest, I don't know if I'm good at anything else. I've been in the space for so long that I'm like, okay, even if I were to like switch career paths at this point, after 23 years, what the hell am I going to do? What do I love? What am I passionate about as much as this? And I can't come up with an honest answer. And then moving into the cloud space just upped the ante. It's completely different. Like when you understand everything on premises and then you switch to the cloud, it's a different mindset. It's a different problem set. And so it, it allowed me to almost reset and start over without actually resetting, like with, without taking a pay cut. Yeah. So for folks that are, are looking in similar situations and they're looking for that reset and they know that they're going to potentially have to take a pay cut, what advice would you have for them for pivoting into that new space? Ooh, yeah, that's a hard one. And I, I don't think I have, I don't think I have a good answer for you because I think it's tough. Uh, it's these days, it's really tough to make the transition but it's still possible. I think it's a matter of, again, being honest with yourself, being very diligent uh, and coming up with a plan, right? Like a flexible plan. You may need to pivot into a role that maybe is not your ideal role, but it may be like a stepping stone into where you want to go or where you want to be. And so look at every opportunity as a stepping stone or a learning opportunity, take what you can get from it and then move on to the next one. So I think it's being okay with making some sacrifices. And I've been okay. I've thought about, hey, if I had to take a pay cut right now or at least a couple of years ago, would I be open to it? And thankfully I didn't have to, but it was something that I did consider because I felt like it was part of that journey to get me where I needed to go. Wow, we're covering a lot of topics right now. We've brought in a cybersecurity anthropologist, Davi Ottenheimer. It was great talking to Davi about his philosophy on cybersecurity and the evolution of it over time. This one is really interesting, and I learned so much from Davi, so let's jump right into it. Davi, we do a little bit of research on every guest that we bring onto the show. And if anyone was to just Google you and look at all the things you've done and the things you're involved with, they would understand if your intro took up the entire show, to be honest with you. <laughs> so would love to hear a little bit more about your background and what you're doing today. Okay. It's not far off. I've heard the complaint when I show up for interviews in the past that my LinkedIn profile is too long. My resume is too much, <laughs> <laughs> but I try to be full disclosure. I try to be transparent about the crazy journey I've had and it wasn't planned. I just was passionate about certain things, playful and have been fortunate, very fortunate to have been allowed to pursue goals that I've come up with myself. Uh, from that sense, it's always been about, there's a humanist approach here. It's always been about ethics for me. Philosophically, I wanted to improve the world. I think a lot of people get that sort of sense of how do I make things better? And I just approached it from an anthropological view due to my parents both being anthropologists, but also a historical view due to being steeped in all kinds of history in the area I grew up in the middle of the United States. So I blended it all together to where I say, okay, what happened in the past? like long past, how do people interact with the technology before and today? And then I try to predict where things are going. And that just suited me strangely for 
a role in security. And it also helped that when I was growing up, the 414s, I like to give credit to, which was the area code for Milwaukee. It was a hacker group. And in the 80s, 85, 86, they were the big thing. So when I was into hacking, they were like the big hackers. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So they really informed a lot of my decisions and choices in life. I don't think they get enough credit for what they did. Great. So when you think about anthropology, you think of things like museums and you think of books where you have this chronicle of the beginning of humanity. And in for technical anthropology, how does that look to you? How does it look in your mind? Well, anthropology is the study of, and to make a fine point, I dropped out of anthropology to be a political scientist, philosopher, ethicist, historian. So I'm probably not the best official of anthropological thinking, but I was steeped in it because both my parents dragged me around the world to do anthropological research. Uh, we lived in Africa. We, I, My first paper was 1986. I presented on a secret language that my brother and I discovered that children spoke. Anthropology really is about the the culture, which includes the technology used by the culture. So if you look at why are people driving? Why are people flying? Why are people, you know, what's the reason, the social construct around the reason people are doing things? You can explain data flows, transit flows, interactions, power dynamics. So it becomes very all-encompassing very quickly. But when you think about it from a hacker standpoint, like, how am I going to get into this building? The first thing you try to understand is what anthropologists do, which is how do people behave? When do they come? When do they go? How do they get in? What devices do they use? So if you're truly an anthropologist, you come and study for an outsider first. You say, observing this situation, what do I see? Then you try to become an insider. So anthropologists are some of the first hackers. And they're challenged for it, too. Did you really get inside? Did you really come to understand how things really, truly work inside an organization? I was fortunate to be an auditor, external auditor as well as internal auditor. And if you didn't understand the flows inside, what good were you as an external auditor? You did not achieve your goal. Um, likewise, I became an investigator and I investigated auditors who were hiding things. So in the course of my career, I think I've bounced around pretty much every role possible in the security industry and maybe every industry. And that just comes from, I think, the curiosity that I was steeped in from anthropology. Why do people do things they do? Could they do them a better way? Are we really protecting people the way we should? What I love about your background and the evolution of your career is you've started even before the 2000s. You were already in technology, already in security, and you've seen the industry evolve over time. It's been now 20 years since the early 2000s. What's been something that you weren't expecting to see as this field changed and evolved? Wow, that's a tough question. What did I not anticipate? It's like everything. So everything and nothing. So I think pain was the thing that I anticipated most easily. So whenever I worked with wires, for example, I kept thinking, man, wires suck. Everybody knows wires suck. There's got to be wireless around the bend. So those kinds of anticipations were great. But for example, I went to CES and I saw the first wireless device made by 3Com at the time. Yeah, I started way back in 94 professionally, and I did a lot of tech stuff before that. But when I entered the market in 94, there were companies like Cayman and Cisco and 3Com and all these things that did a lot of weird stuff. They had a wireless device with the keys printed on the box, hard-coded. And I said to the guy in the booth, I was like, 
these are keys, right? You got to rotate keys. Everyone knows, again, back to anthropology, who builds a house where the key can't be changed? It's just so common sense. And he was like, that we would never get adoption in wireless if we didn't have the keys like hard coded on the box for everyone to use forever. That was WEP. That was the first. And I just thought, I did not see that coming. I thought people would use a little common sense and be like, we got to have rotation of, you know, credentials. Everyone knows you lose your keys or keys get stolen. Nope. We make some of the mistakes that are so obvious that it's just hard for me to believe we're making them. Wow. What an incredible conversation with Davi. In this final highlighted episode, we have our good friend, Rafael Nunez. And this was such an amazing episode. We're actually going to release this episode in its entirety as a bonus episode. But in this episode, we talk about how he feels as as a person, as a practitioner, as a person that's always pushing the limits of what's possible. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Would you say that, do you look at yourself in phases? So Ron and I, we actually talk about different versions of ourselves. And so right now I'm working on Chris 4.0 at this period. Do you look at your life and and stages uh, and how do you measure your growth over time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, man. I don't beat myself up as much as I used to when I was young. I would, and by young, I'm 41 now, in my 20s, 30s, diving into regret. Oh, I did this wrong and just being hung up on the past. I don't beat myself up that much anymore. I think this is one of the this is one of the best moments because I have less comparison. I take less time to focus to measure my accomplishments based on comparing them with somebody else's, right? So comparing my chapter three to somebody's chapter 30, I, I try to deprive myself of that as much as possible. So I, I wanna say this is this is probably there were five chapters. This is chapter two of of feeling like I'm in my prime physically, professionally. I've acknowledged I don't need more than six hours of sleep. I suddenly realize I think I'm lactose intolerant. I, I am more easier to let people know what I don't like and say no more often than I used to, even though I try to be a generous person. But yeah, I, I think this is definitely a great time. I think I, I wouldn't change where I am now in comparison to my 20s. So what, what does overcoming mean to you and how does it play a pivotal role in your life? Man, I can share overcoming. I can share overcoming in so many different realms, so many different areas. I, I, I think overcoming is a necessity. I believe that, that any suffering, pain you endure is the means of a great achievement in any platform. But I'll focus, I'll take it back to family. Being in New Jersey, there was a point where my dad made, you know, I have two siblings, my mom, obviously. My dad made $200 a week and rent was $600 a month. We were so poor, but we never knew it. And that was the beauty about it. I can look back on it, get nostalgic about it. We were, we, our house was right next to a Catholic school and the nuns would drop off boxes of like generic cereal, right? The no brand cereal, right? Not Apple Jacks, mm-hmm. but like Apple Dapples, right. pancake mix, <laughs> bread. And we always had that coming in. I think that's probably where some of my generosity uh, started to be uh, harvested as well. But that level of overcoming, your car was broken and you had to get down and try to fix it yourself. You couldn't take it to the shop. We wanted name brand jeans and sneakers and we couldn't always get them. That's probably where everything began. Five years later, leaving New Jersey, going back to the Dominican Republic and looking back, like just wondering, how did we survive? How did we make it? How did dad make ends meet? when he only had less than $200 left over a month for a family of five. I look at overcoming, I I often look at what did it take in order to get there? Like, 
how did you strive? Because there's always a way to strive. And that could be even just striving mentally. So what are some things that you did back then or even today that help you strive mentally? Because overcoming is often a hard mental challenge. I, I agree with you 100%. It is definitely a mental challenge. I believe that if you can visualize and think uh, to yourself how the story ends, then the rest becomes the rest becomes a worthy ideal, right? You don't you can't you don't pursue something that you've already perceived as impossible. So the moment that you tell yourself it's possible, it's a worthy ideal, no matter how hard it gets, if you know how the story ends, you're gonna pursue it. But to pursue something and knowing that you'll never have entertainment, that you can't accomplish it. That's the thing. So oftentimes I take on a challenge, something is up, I'm big on my faith and it seems really hard. I just have this ability to start visualizing and start saying, okay, what is the worst that could happen right? in pursuit of this? What will I accomplish in the journey? And ultimately, what is the worst that could happen if I don't accomplish my goal? Who will I have become? If I set out to, to do, I don't know, a hundred pull-ups in a day, and I only do 70, well, anything's better than nothing. I'll still have done more than the average guy at my age. You know, you know what I mean? Yep. That, that's one of the techniques that I've read that Michael Phelps did um, and that his coach really instilled in him was to visualize every single day the outcome of him winning his competitions. Yes, yes. It's, it's just, I believe his name is, is it Robert Bannister, the first guy that broke the, the mile in uh, under four minutes, four minute mile. And then right. after he did it, over 20,000 people accomplished that feat because suddenly it wasn't an impossible thing. It was like, okay, this guy's breathe the same air as I do, flesh and blood as I am, let's do this. Yeah, I think, and, and it's not visualization by itself. You have to do the work, the execution is required, but the belief that something is attainable will push you to take the first step. Man, just hearing from all of these experts and all these brilliant folks, it's really surreal when you look back at all of the folks that we've talked to, over 100 people in our past, in our present, in our future, that are part of that Hacker Valley family. And But most of all, I really want to thank you, Ron, for everything that you've done to keep me motivated, keep me accountable for all of the stuff that we have going on with the podcast. We couldn't do Hacker Valley Studio without you. And I just want to say thank you so much for being in this journey with me and being one of my best friends. Definitely. The pleasure is mine. It's been a true dream come true. For any of the OG listeners, this used to be called SecDevOps.ai. <laughs> what a mouthful. Yeah. And with our partnership, our teamwork, not only did we come up with a better name, but we came up with a brand that we could be proud of. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of our friendship. And I'm proud of what we're creating. I'm proud of everyone for listening and constantly learning and all of our amazing guests for giving so much back to us. I think that you and I both, we are a dynamic duo and we are unstoppable. I'm excited for our future. I'm super excited. One of the very first episodes, I asked you a question about legacy. And I think part of our legacy is going to be this podcast. When I'm long gone you know, from this world, People are going to be able to still listen to my voice, your voice, my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids. If the Internet's still around, they'll be able to hear my thoughts. They'll be able to hear your thoughts. They'll be able to hear what were we thinking about in this time, in this world, in this field of cybersecurity. And I, I think there's something really special to that. It's almost like 
you're creating something that's going to outlive you. And I can't wait to see where we go with this next 100 episodes, just continuously getting better. We're not going to rest on our laurels and just finding and amplifying the voices of people around the world is uh, what we're going to continue to do. Absolutely. I cannot wait for the next 100. And we'll be sure to do more giveaways. Big shout outs to AJ Yawn and Mary Galloway for winning this uh, giveaway of the poster, the shirt and the mastermind. We have a lot to create and we're just getting started with that. We'll see everybody next time.